Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm not Paul Levengood. <laughs> Paul usually asks you to say good afternoon several times, but I won't do that. I'm Nelson Langford, Vice President for Programs here at the Virginia Historical Society. Paul is uh, enjoying a much-deserved family week vacation at the beach. He regrets he couldn't be here, but uh, that means that I get to welcome you to another banner lecture at the Virginia Historical Society here in, as Paul would say, the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. Uh, before we begin today's program, I'd like to remind you of the next banner lecture. It will be on August the 8th, uh, when Ray McAllister will be here once again to speak about his latest book on the North Carolina coast. It's called Ocracoke, the Pearl of the Outer Banks. So if you can't get to the beach that week, come on down to the VHS and hear what Ray has to say about Ocracoke. If you heard him before, you know he's a very engaging speaker. Um, our next gallery walk will be on August the 21st. Chris Van Tassel will lead a tour in the galleries entitled Religion in Virginia from Powhatan to Pat Robertson. Now that should be interesting. <laughs> Our next behind the scenes tour will be on Saturday, August the 31st at 10.30. Um, and if you've been to any of those behind the scenes tours, they're all uh, on Saturdays and they've been sold out the last four or five months. Uh, the one for August 31st is gonna be called Round Robin, Social Networking Before Facebook. And it, and it deals with some interesting items in our collection. And you can find out about uh, other upcoming lectures and classes and bus trips uh, on the website or ask the folks at the front desk for some printed information. And now, please do what I did a few minutes ago and turn off my little taskmaster. Uh, we don't want those cell phones ringing during the speaker's remarks. Um, as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, which, uh, whose support helps, um, helps us provide all of these banner lectures. Today, however, is a very special occasion because today's lecture is co-sponsored with the Museum of the Confederacy. And I hope all of you have been down to see the Museum of the Confederacy recently. If you haven't, you, you owe yourself the trip. And we've done several cooperative events uh, over the years with the MOC, and I think it's fair to say they've all been very successful, and, and I'm delighted to see such a great turnout today. Uh, it's, it's, it's on the, the level of uh, the other events we've sponsored with the MOC. I always know when, when uh, the MOC comes to us with a lecture idea that we'll have a great turnout because they bring us great speakers. Um, so it's just, it's just wonderful to see uh, almost full auditorium to come out to hear our speaker um, and to give thanks to the Museum of the Confederacy for bringing him here. And I'd also like to uh, give a special welcome to the uh, Museum of the Confederacy's Board of Directors who are our special guests, as are members of the MOC. Now here to, do, to introduce our speaker is Waite Rawls, who is President and CEO of the Museum of the Confederacy. Waite. Uh, thank you, Nelson. I, you know, the power of collaboration is terrific. We were talking uh, uh, down here in the front coming up in September, our uh, annual lecture uh, co-hosted with the University of Richmond is a woman named Carrie Janney who's going to talk about her new book, uh, uh, Confederate Memory. And uh, we said, gee whiz, our friends at Hollywood, uh, if Carrie's going to come from Purdue to talk about it, she's really the expert on the Confederate section at Hollywood, so she's doing a lecture that's going to be here at the VHS on the Confederate section at Hollywood. How did all those Confederates get there? And uh, so it's, it's fun when we can work together with other people for, really for your benefit. But uh, thank you, Nelson, and more generally, uh, let me extend our thanks to the VHS for hosting this. Um, we have teamed up a number of times, and, I, and I, I do hope there'll be a lot more in the future. 
Those of you who've been campaigning your way through the Civil War sesquicentennial have had the opportunity to attend uh, important and outstanding lectures here at the VHS and under the MOC sponsorship at the Virginia State Capitol and the Virginia War Memorial in Hanover Tavern about such topics as Lee taking command in Virginia, Lee taking command of the Army of Northern Virginia, and the wounding and death of Stonewall Jackson. I know that for many of you, there's no such thing as too much Robert E. Lee or too much Stonewall Jackson. But in the back of our minds, you know, there, there was more to the war than Lee Jackson in the Army of Northern Virginia. For example, as a VMI graduate, I like to remember a little engagement at Newmarket that did not include, include Lee or Jackson or the Army of Northern Virginia, but it did include a few VMI cadets. But even extending our sesquicentennial gaze to the Shenandoah Valley does not do full justice to the full story of the war in the Commonwealth. We need to look to the distant horizon, to southwest Virginia and Appalachia to get the full story. When we do so, we learn not only about a different region of our state, but a different kind of war. This is, there's no one more qualified to tell this story of the Civil War in southwest Virginia in Appalachia than Dr. Brian McKnight. Brian's a graduate of the UVA WISE, where he studied with Brian Wills, who's been a speaker here at the VHS before. Brian went on to earn his, his master's at East Tennessee State and his PhD at Mississippi State, and teach for several years at Angelo State University in Texas, before returning to WISE, where he is now Associate Professor of History and the Director of the Appalachian Warfare Program. He established his reputation as an important historian of the Civil War with his 2006 book, Contested Borderland, The Civil War in Appalachian, Kentucky, and Virginia, which received the James I. Bud Robertson Literary Award. Uh, I think there's copies of the book on sale outside when, when you leave. He solidified that reputation with Confederate outlaw Champ Ferguson in the Civil War in Appalachia, published by the LSU Press in 2011, which received the 2011 Tennessee Book Award. The same year, he co-edited a college history reader in Kent State University Press's Interpreting American History series entitled The Age of Andrew Jackson. Brian teaches and has taught a staggering variety of courses, and his research interests are broad. But he comes to us today as an apostle of the importance of a too frequently overlooked corner of our commonwealth. MOC members know that he contributed an excellent article to our uh, most recent quarterly magazine, The Spring Issue. Some of you may recognize his voice from the radio show with good reason. And some of you may recognize his face from an appearance on NBC's Who Do You Think You Are about Ashley Judd. Uh, Brian needs no introduction to his wife and daughter who are with him here today. But ladies and gentlemen, for you, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Brian McKnight. The, uh, the thing that comes to mind right now is the old Lyndon Johnson quote, it was an introduction my father would have loved and my mother would have believed. Uh, <laughs> a couple of caveats, I'm pretty low tech, so if you came here for a scintillating PowerPoint presentation, you've missed it today. Uh, and uh, my wife and daughter are not here, they went to the art museum, I think they've heard enough of me. We've been on the road for about five days, and that can be pretty tough sometimes, even in the best of situations or circumstances. Um, one of the things that I really truly believe is that you have to let historical actors speak for themselves. You can't necessarily believe everything they say, but it's always good to let them speak for themselves, and, and that'll give you an opportunity to kind of springboard off that and elaborate a little bit, and that's one of the things I really like to do. Um, my PowerPoint presentation will not necessarily follow along with my uh, discussion today, mainly because some of the individuals I tend to talk about, there are no images of these people. These are just stories that have been recorded uh, in history 
and, uh, and passed down through various publications. Uh, and, and one of the things that I'm so happy about, and, and Wade did a, an excellent job introducing why I'm here, I do most of my lectures in southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky and in East Tennessee, and that's great, but those are people who are very much connected to this kind of war. And I know it's going to be a shock to you, but down in southwest Virginia, we tend not to think, of, think that Virginia extends past Roanoke, you know? <laughs> but in, in my works, you very often don't find the Robert E. Lees and the Ulysses Grants. You find the Humphrey Marshalls and the, uh, one of my favorite... Um, our, uh, our Jackson was Alfred Jackson, nicknamed Mudwall Jackson. So, <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't pick the nickname, by the way. Um, the first thing I'd like to, to talk about is I want to tell you a story. This story was written down in the early 1920s by a woman who was a child during the Civil War. And she was living with her grandparents uh, in Dickinson County, uh, Virginia. And she remembered that there was a Union deserter who used to come down out of the hills every day. And he would walk down the road of that hollow and he would stop at every house and he would bum food every single day. And, you know, we have these stories and sometimes as a historian, I hear these stories, I read these stories, and I'm very skeptical until she remembered that the guy's name was Benny. She even remembered his name after all those years. So it had been about 60 years, she still remembered his name. And she said that one day her grandfather got convinced that Benny was going to kill his family. So the grandfather sends the family away. He waits for Benny to come down the road. He hollers at Benny. He says, Benny, come on in. I've got some whiskey. Benny's in the business of taking what's offered. He's not picky. So Benny goes in. He sits down. Grandpa turns to pour some whiskey, picks up a gun, and kills Benny in the front room of the house. I thought about that when I read that story the first time, and I said, gosh, man, I wonder. That was a pretty mean grandpa, right? But... I began to think, I said, no, he was probably like mine, really nice guy, who was scared, who was terrified. And you've got to really appreciate how terrified you have to be to do something like that, which apparently was completely out of his character. So this is, this is really where we tend to go with this. The Civil War in a place like southwestern Virginia in the Appalachian Mountains that Civil War was a different sort of Civil War than most people ever get an opportunity to appreciate. Uh, it did it very famously turned brother against brother. That happened throughout the Civil War, actually. But it was very much an individual community and family-driven war. And that's one of the things uh, that I'll spend some time talking about. Here's a map that'll introduce you to the areas that I'm talking about when I said uh, uh, Dickinson County, I'm talking about part of Wise and part of Buchanan counties. It'll, uh, Dickinson County will grow out of that. But another thing I want to mention to you, to give us a little room for thought, is I want to read to you um, the statement of John Sharp. John Sharp was a representative from Lee County, the furthermost uh, uh, county in Virginia West. Uh, John was a representative to the secession convention, and this is what he said about secession. The separate and immediate secession of Virginia is equivalent to immediate war, and in the unprepared and defenseless condition of the state, war is destruction and direful ruin to her. She is without soldiers' arms, money, and with a debt of 40 millions hanging over her without the means of payment. That's a statement. We've read all kinds of statements. John Sharp voted for secession. It doesn't sound like he's going to, but he voted for secession. And one of the very important things that, that we need to keep in mind, particularly when we get into these contested regions, 
we've got to figure out what ties people together. And one of the things that ties people together, it's not the mountains. The mountains tend to divide them. But those rivers, those rivers tend to tie people together. So for John Sharp in Lee County, Virginia, he knows that when something gets put on the river, it ends up in Knoxville. And then it ends up in Chattanooga. And then it ends up in Nashville. He knows what side his bread is buttered on. And his side is a southern side when it comes to the secession issue. Um, we're probably also familiar with people like Beriah McGoffin, governor of Kentucky, who swore that he would not supply soldiers for the uh, suppression of southern states. So in this entire region, you have a lot of division as far as sentiment is concerned and uh, as far as uh, uh, general uh, outlook on the war. One of my favorite discoveries when I was doing my research was of a uh, diary written by Edward O. Garant. And uh, uh, William C. Davis uh, has edited this diary into book form through LSU Press, and it's such an enjoyable read. Uh, Garant was from Winchester, Kentucky, which is just east of uh, Lexington. And uh, he spent most of his Civil War career in uh, southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky and East Tennessee. So he was pretty much a very visible uh, presence in that area throughout the war, but he has such a good, uh, such a great ability to turn a phrase. Uh, Garant, on the morning after he enlisted in the Confederate Army, wrote, awoke this morning a soldier, but did not feel any more bloodthirsty or pugilistic. He's expecting some great transformation. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that speaks to us today. Uh, you know, we have people coming back from war today, and they're having a tough time adjusting. Uh, war is a pretty um, outside-of-the-norm uh, kind of uh, event in one's life. And, and I think uh, Garant, although he says it so humorously and so easily, it does give us a little... Uh, food for thought there. But as we get deeper into this conflict, what we begin to see is that southwestern Virginia, uh, East Tennessee, eastern Kentucky, these localities present problems that aren't necessarily seen elsewhere. First off, ge geography is a major issue. You have at Cumberland Gap and at Pound Gap this is an international border, by the way, as far as the Confederacy is concerned. And you know how we feel about borders historically. We're very, very interested in defending them. But between Cumberland Gap and Pound Gap, you don't really have any other place where you can actually bring an army in or out. So you do have a pretty stable border in that region as long as you cover those two points. Now, once you go west from Cumberland Gap, there is no kind of uh, geographic uh, fence uh, there like the Appalachian Mountains provide uh, between Kentucky and Virginia. So you're beginning to see that there are very narrow avenues of invasion, which is going to be a major problem during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln desperately wants to get a federal army into East Tennessee. It's just not going to happen, mainly because from Cumberland Gap Basically, to London, the road that runs through there is so easy to pull off ambushes on. So it would be very dangerous. If, if, if Lincoln had, had forced an army into East Tennessee, it would be very easy to cut it off and, and to essentially have it die in East Tennessee. Uh, so that was a major concern uh, throughout the war, and uh, I'm not so sure Lincoln understood that. Uh, any better than, uh, than his generals were willing to undertake it. Uh, some of the folks who are in Lincoln's ear are East Tennessee Unionists, and East Tennessee had a lot of Unionists. Now, in Southwest Virginia, you didn't have that many. Southwest Virginia was, by and large, a Confederate region from the, from the start of the war. But in East Tennessee, you have a lot of these Unionists, and, and they're in a unique position uh, one of the great quotes I always enjoy sharing is this is a letter from uh, Edward Maynard, son of Horace Maynard, 
who is in Congress, federal Congress, and uh, an outspoken East Tennessee Unionist. Uh, Edward Maynard writes, Young Easley, a guy he knew, Young Easley came in with him. I'm sorry he was released. He was and is a rebel at heart. So they've arrested this guy. They've uh, jailed him. His release can do us no harm and uh, no good and does you harm. So they've released him. Uh, the men do not relish taking prisoners to have them immediately released to fight us again. So his father apparently had something to do with this. He's explaining all this to his father. And then in the last line, he becomes the son in this letter to his father. He says, for God's sake, don't release any more rebels if you can help it. And you know his fear is, these guys are going to kill me. These are dangerous people that you're turning loose for political gain or for political advantage. And that's something that is certainly a concern uh, in these areas. Now, I went through secession and talked a little bit. We're very familiar with how secession turned out, particularly Virginia's interesting um, history during that era. And I've enlarged uh, Western Virginia there uh, to show you that you did have uh, no returns available in Washington County, and in Lee County you had a divided delegation. Uh, for the most part, it was a pro-secession region from, uh, from the time of the vote. And this uh, is one of the uh, locations that is so important to Southwest Virginia. And I encourage all of you, if you, if you get an opportunity to get in that, uh, get to traveling in that region, visit Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. It is, it's a wonderful uh, spot to spend some time. This is Cumberland Gap. That is the gap. And it is um, in, uh, it's under Confederate occupation at this point. You can see the tents scattered along. It's been deforested, uh, so you can have uh, plenty, of, uh, plenty of sight lines. And along those hills, even higher out of the frame, uh, you have cannon uh, sitting up there, uh, ready to be uh, ready to be exercised. We might say, Cumberland Gap is certainly uh, the real jewel in the Appalachian region during the Civil War. Uh, the Confederacy needs to hold it because they know the Union wants it, and the Union needs to take it if it's going to accomplish what Lincoln desperately wants, and that is to have an invasion of East Tennessee. A Confederate soldier wrote that Cumberland Gap is the Thermopylae of the state, well fortified by nature. With a little labor, it can be made almost impregnable. So it's a very strong position. And if you visited the Gap uh, in the past and you go up to the pinnacle, you can't imagine a stronger position for artillery. Another Confederate the Gap is one of the strongest fortified places I ever saw. 10,000 men could hold it successfully against 100,000. So this is a very impressive place. But one of the things that I want you to keep in mind, the things that make so much sense outside of Appalachia in the Civil War are often turned on their head inside of Appalachia. So you've got both armies fighting for this impregnable, fortified place. It changes, it changes hands like five times during the war, so it's not that impregnable. <laughs> and when you go up to the pinnacle, and you're up there, and you're 2,000 feet above the valley floor, and, you, and you've got a cannon there, and you set that cannon off, it fires over the valley into the next mountain. And what don't they have on top of mountains that everybody needs? A good drink of water. So enemy armies will essentially surround it too close for the cannon to do any good and force evacuations. So a lot of the times the things that we just assume to be you know, the, the list of, of, of checks that have to be made to be victorious doesn't turn out as such in Appalachia. 
And the Cumberland Gap is a very good example of this. Now, there is also a good bit of color in the region. Uh, I talked about we didn't have, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee's and Ulysses Grant's. We had Humphrey Marshall's. Humphrey Marshall was a Kentuckian, and he spent his uh, Civil War years, the first couple of them at least, in command of Confederate forces in southwestern Virginia. Marshall was a West Pointer, uh, graduated in 1832. Uh, he was a veteran of the Mexican War, but he was no soldier. Uh, Humphrey Marshall was a very heavy man, uh, and he was uh, essentially relegated to horseback because of the terrain, which made a lot of, of, of jokes available about Humphrey Marshall's poor horse. Um, one uh, Kentucky Unionist uh, mentioned in her diary that she had heard that the Louisville Democrat newspaper uh, had stated that Humphrey Marshall had been gobbled up in eastern Kentucky, and she said that that was a mouthful. Um, Marshall, Marshall made a mistake. He made a mistake that a lot of people make. He offered his resignation to somebody who would accept it. And... You should never do that. If you're going to threaten resigning, you better know where the person you're threatening to stands. So he, he, made, he offered his resignation. It was accepted. So he ended up doing what, what was logical for the time and coming to Richmond where he could be a greater critic of the Confederate war effort as a member of the Confederate Congress. Uh, Marshall was so ambitious. He believed that Kentucky was ripe for Confederate picking, and that just was never the case. Uh, he actually announced to his men one day that if they invaded eastern Kentucky, that Kentuckians would rally to his banner like the Italians did to Garibaldi. I mean, that's beautiful. It didn't happen. He went in and came out with fewer men than he went in with because a lot of them thought that was a good opportunity to go home and get something to eat. But Marshall is emblematic of this. Marshall is not a person from the Appalachian region, so he doesn't quite understand what's important to the people at that time. Uh, one of the great examples, uh, and Edward O'Grant told this story in his diary, Marshall went up to an old man in a small town and he said, listen, you have all these strong young men running around here. None of them are joining my army. What's going on? You need to make them join my army. And he said that the old man told Marshall, we all live by and through one another. And Marshall didn't quite get what the old man was saying. And when Marshall left, he kind of thought the old man's cheese might have slid off his cracker, that he was talking <laughs> nonsense. But Garant understood that what was going on in eastern Kentucky was if a community that small split, there would be serious suffering. That you depend on certain people for certain elements in your life and that half of those elements would be cut off and they wouldn't be easily returned. So Garant and Marshall provide a nice little example of this interconnected nature of uh, the Appalachian experience. That's a duplicate map, in case you didn't get the first one. <laughs> this one is, um, is, is, this is an era map, and it's, like I said, a lot of my people don't, uh, they're fairly faceless when, uh, when you're doing the history, so I try to, um, I try to kind of cover you up with maps where I can. Um, up until late 1862, the Union Army is uh, trying its best to make it into southwestern Virginia, and it'll uh, ultimately uh, make it into southwest Virginia to stay uh, in early uh, to mid-1863. Uh, they, uh, 
Uh, once the army comes in and secures a supply line, uh, everything uh, is, uh, is, is secure for the Union, although they don't make it deep into the territory. Uh, it's too hard to maintain that supply line against guerrillas, and there are an awful lot of guerrillas operating in that part of the country. Uh, guerrilla warfare is part and parcel of what you have to do when you write Appalachian Civil War studies, because guerrilla warfare is the way that many people in this area prosecuted the war. They didn't necessarily want to join the army. They wanted to participate in the war from their own positions. And uh, my most recent book, Confederate Outlaw, is the story of one of the most notorious. And to give you an idea about this, you know, in, in this part of Virginia, we're really familiar with, let's say, I, I spent part of the early week in Warrington, so Mosby. Mosby is a gorilla, as, as many people define gorillas. But you have to understand, Mosby, in comparison to these Appalachian gorillas, is a very orderly gorilla. Uh, I know, that's kind of odd. Champ Ferguson operated in, in really west of Cumberland Gap, of about maybe 60, 70 miles. Champ never joined the Confederate Army, yet he killed, by his own estimate, about 120 people through the war. We're talking about four years, 12 months, 48 months total, 120 people. That's a lot. Now, let's think about this a little bit. Uh, 48 months, 120 people, two and a half get killed every month, let's say, if, if the averages are, are true. How do you kill 120 people and not get killed yourself? That's hard to do unless, unless you do like Champ and you take time, as he called it, by the forelock. Isn't that called paranoid schizophrenia? <laughs> because he knew these people would kill him if he didn't kill them first. I'm terrified of people who think like that. <laughs> he, really, he really did. He, it, but you know what? When I think about Champ, I think about that woman's grandfather. Same thing. He was scared to death. Uh, Champ was pretty evil, too, but he was also pretty scared. He knew that this could go either way at any moment. Uh, why would Champ be afraid? Well, he had a brother who was a Union scout. While he's a Confederate guerrilla, and his brother's trying to kill him just as he's trying to kill his brother. So there are a lot of these things going on in southwestern Virginia, eastern Kentucky, eastern Tennessee, that you don't necessarily see elsewhere. Uh, it, it really does turn it into a very dysfunctional war. Uh, by the way, a lot of people uh, don't know very much about Champ. Champ is actually, at the end of the war, he's convicted of uh, 53 counts of murder uh, via court-martial in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. They had, they had charged him with 55 counts, but apparently they had lost two counts somewhere during the deliberation. That means you've killed too many people when they actually lose murder counts. Uh, so they convicted him of 53, they executed him, uh, and I tend to believe that that execution, that trial and execution of Champ Ferguson is, uh, is a test case for what happens with Henry Wirtz pretty shortly thereafter. Uh, Champ was executed as a war criminal. And a lot of people, um, you know, there's always a lot of debate and discussion about who was a war criminal, who was executed, etc. Uh, Champ and Henry Wirtz are the two that immediately come to my line, or come to my mind. I'm, I'm reading and talking at the same time. Um, by late 1863, the Civil War in Southwest Virginia is looking pretty badly for the Confederates. They're running out of stuff. Women break into shops in Abingdon very much in the same way the bread rides took place here in Richmond and essentially, you know, essentially bust in on the shop and steal what they steal and take off running and hope they don't get caught. And, and that's, the, that's the way they're going to have to feed their families. 
as a result of the war. Um, the Confederates are pulling back, uh, protecting the railroad and protecting the salt works near Saltville. Uh, Edward Garant is still keeping his diary. He writes amusing things like, I should be willing to stop my journal if Lincoln will stop the war. Um, <laughs> Lincoln didn't stop the war, and he continued on with his journal. Ellen Renshaw House, who was a good rebel in, in Knoxville, Ellen Renshaw House uh, had a boyfriend named Lieutenant Wilkins, and uh, she and Lieutenant Wilkins were on again and off again. So I'll read this to you out of her diary, and you tell me how things were going. She writes, the Yankees have Cumberland Gap. They have taken 2,000 prisoners. I wonder if Lieutenant Wilkins was among those taken. What a pity for that new coat to go to prison. Yep, what a pity. Um, <laughs> I've often wanted to go see if she married him eventually. That would be great. Um, by late 1863, early 1864, Confederate fortunes in southwest Virginia are really on the ropes. And, and it really comes down to loyalty. We've got to remember, you know, I always make the joke that Eastern Kentucky drove William Tecumseh Sherman crazy, but it did. He was getting conflicting reports out of Eastern Kentucky, and, and that played a major role in his breakdown uh, early in the war. And you'll notice he didn't end up back there. Uh, others, uh, early in the war in Eastern Kentucky, this is a story I like to tell. It kind of gives us an idea about what or how people are thinking about the war locally. Um, a man in eastern Kentucky writes the uh, Union commanders, and he says, um, he says, I really appreciate the guns and the ammunition, but we desperately need tents and uniforms. We must look like an army. The idea is that these people aren't going to believe we can win until we start looking like we're an official force with some real training and uniforms and tents and, and an operation that can pull it off. Until then, they'll continue to sit on the fence, which is what they did for quite some time. A Confederate soldier wrote, to tell the truth, it was almost impossible to tell the loyal from the disloyal. And that's where the problem is. We learn these lessons in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. When, it, when you can't tell who the friend and the enemy is, you have a major problem to deal with militarily. But sometimes uh, you can figure out who they are. And uh, another Confederate, he tells a story about his Civil War experience he says, we sometimes meet with an old union man who treats us pretty rough, but his bee gums and chickens repay for the damage done. <laughs> well, the fact is, that is probably a perpetuating issue. As they're robbing the union man, he's hating them even more. Uh, so, you know, even, even when you think you have it figured out, there's a lot of flexibility built into it. As the war gets into 1865, or really late 1864, you see that the Confederates are retreating even further back. It's more difficult for them to hold what they've had for so long. Edward Grant, December 1864, writes, only about 10 or 15 rounds of ammunition in the whole department of Southwest Virginia and about 4,000 Yankees in it. October 1864, one of the most notorious events of the Civil War took place in Southwest Virginia at the Battle of Saltville. 
estimated anywhere from about 50 to 70 Union soldiers were killed um, after the battle, um, many of them black uh, soldiers out of Kentucky, and many of them killed by Texans and Tennesseans who were fighting there. This becomes one of the great controversies in Civil War history, and uh, it's since the 1970s uh, that people have explored this issue and uh, started with uh, William C. Davis, who's down at Virginia Tech now, uh, when he was with, uh, I think, Civil War Times Illustrated. This is the largest battle in southwestern Virginia, or at least in far southwestern Virginia, with about 9,000 soldiers present on the battlefield that day. That's tiny by the standards that you find around Richmond and in, in, in uh, eastern and northern Virginia. But for the terrain there, it's a pretty big battle, pretty formidable. The story of that, or the rumors, let's say, of those atrocities made it all the way to Richmond, made it all the way up to Robert E. Lee, who hoped uh, that his men weren't involved in the way that the, uh, that the rumors suggested Confederates were. By early 1865, in southwestern Virginia, times were rough. The Confederate Army was in retreat, and for the most part, local Confederates had chosen to desert rather than stay. In some of these regiments, they'd find 10 or 15 guys had walked out every night. It was just that easy to get away once you got outside of camp and uh, a lot of these men didn't necessarily see a reason to stay much longer. But the story doesn't end in April 1865. The story actually lasts a good bit longer. And this is perhaps where the most interesting history is done, although there's not that much in the way of resources to pursue it. A citizen of Harlan County, Kentucky, which is just across the border there from where you see Crab Orchard, wrote, Guerrillas ha has nearly laid waste to the county by pillaging, plundering, and robbing, and are well-armed and men of the worst character, and the civil authorities cannot apprehend them. When the local civil authorities can't do anything about these roughnecks running roughshod over your community. You're living in anarchy. And the best quote, and the quote I'll end with, is very simple, written by a woman to her brother uh, from Whitley County near Cumberland Gap. She writes a very simple sentence. The war seems to be over. She wrote this on April 1st, 1866. <laughs> so up to that point, we have to assume that the war had not seemed to have been over. In short, one of the things I hope I've accomplished here today is to kind of whet your appetite for more information about the Civil War in Southwestern Virginia and Civil War in Appalachia. It's certainly a different war than we see when we visit national parks. Um, and it's, uh, in my estimation, it's a very modern war for all the wrong reasons. The problems we have in the 21st century when we go to war, uh, these were pioneered in Appalachia 150 years ago. And it's something we can, I think we can learn a lot uh, for use in our daily lives and, and in our lifetimes uh, from stories like these and from, uh, from the, the situation that's, that Western Virginia and the Appalachian region found itself in 1861 to 1865. Thank you so much for having me. Now I'm going to take some questions, and I think we have microphones floating around. So if you if you raise your hand, and I don't if I'm if I'm ignoring you, it's not that I'm ignoring you. I'm paying more attention to Graham. 
Yes, Grant. These guerrilla bands would, of course, attack the opposing army. Did they fight amongst themselves? Oh, yeah, they were a rough bunch. Um, they would attack the opposing army. They would attack uh, citizens who were loyal to, to whomever they resisted. One of the great stories out in central Kentucky, a guy named William Hull was walking down the road. He wasn't a member of the army or anything. He's walking down the road, and he gets shot in the head. And, and I guess the worst-case scenario, he survived. If I ever get shot in the head, I want it to be over at that point. But he survived it. And uh, several years after the war, uh, 1867, 1868, uh, he was walking through a town in Kentucky, Tompkinsville, Kentucky, and he shot a man dead in the street. And they said, why did you do that? He said he was the man who shot me. He got shot in the back of the head. <laughs> he got shot in the back of the head. Now, this is a crazy guy, right? William Hall. His son was Cordell Hall. Oh. I mean, if Cordell Hall's father can be di driven to this, anybody can be driven to this. Yes. Um, you spoke about the geographic uh, elements and the, essentially the way it affected the uh, war. You mentioned the economic ones in terms of who's economically connected to, for example, the markets mm -hmm. in different places. What about the cultural <coughs> nature of the population? I mean, Ma I think it's, you know, isn't Malcolm Gladwell talks about borderlands yes. and his outliers, and he talks about these people descending from uh, groups in the Scottish, English, and then the English, Irish borders, where they're constantly fighting with each other. Yeah. There's a very high degree of violence in Europe, and they've brought it over to this country. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what you're saying, and I'm glad we don't have a bunch of Appalachian historians in here because they'd crucify me for this. Um, I, I grew up in Appalachia, and, and Appalachians tend to be pretty socially isolated by their own choosing. Um, it's not that every time you say that, somebody says, well, they have MTV. Well, okay, congratulations, they have MTV. But, but they don't go out and actively seek a new life for themselves. They want to stay there, and they want to keep these old things going. And a lot of Richmonders descend from those folks, and a lot of them moved up here to get jobs in the 60s. They probably know well what I'm talking about. Um, but, yeah, th there is that cultural background uh, that Scottish Highlands background that wasn't as romantic as a lot of people want to remember it as being. It was a very violent society, and, and a lot of that stuff stuck around. And uh, other than that, it's sociological speculation. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Gladwell talked a good bit about it, and I think he did a pretty good job with it, actually. Can you comment uh, on the what's been termed the bushwhacking years and how long that lasted uh, after the war and, and just what the conditions were in, in that uh, region? Well, yeah, I think one of, the, one of the important elements of this is the Civil War brought something to the Appalachian region that was really dangerous for that region. It brought dependable firearms. Um, before, before the Civil War, you didn't necessarily have a lot of dependable firearms in that area. Uh, once you get into mass-produced weapons and the Civil War puts them in a lot of people's hands who shouldn't have firearms at that time, Champ Ferguson is my example here. If there's anybody who should be restricted from buying a gun, it was probably Champ, because he would use it on it about anybody he decided to. Um, but yeah, it puts firearms in people's hands, and they carry, they carry uh, those guns for years afterward, and they know how to use them, and uh, a lot of that, um, that social instability is settled at the muzzle of a gun in the 10 or 20 or even 30 years later. Uh, we have these stories all over the United States, but particularly beginning in the 1880s, 1890s, you have Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Union, uh, Pennsylvania steel interests moving into the Appalachian region, mining coal and trying to get iron ore. 
which turns out to be inferior, but that's their, their initial idea anyway. And uh, with these steel interests moving in, uh, they're kind of upsetting the way things generally work. Uh, so you have a lot of violence growing out of that. And that continues on, and you can even see it into the 50s and 60s and 70s with the violence uh, that's not just isolated to Appalachia in labor fights, but uh, throughout the United States. So there's, I think there's an argument to be made. And, and in this era where the Hatfields and McCoys are on TV now, you know, we automatically go back to that. I'm not sure that we can connect the Hatfield-McCoy uh, feud to uh, the Civil War as well as we can connect it to a pig and economic interest. Um, <laughs> oh, you laugh, but I think that's, uh, that's right. But, um, but I think there's something to be said there. Um, yes. Uh, Cumberland Gap, which was, you said was it switched power five times. I can imagine there was a lot of bloodshed. Were there many of these guerrillas fighting at Cumberland Gap, considering that the cannons were surrounded? Were there soldiers and guerrillas fighting against the oncoming enemies? Uh, by and large, no. Uh, the guerrillas tended to uh, lurk around the roads. Uh, they, mm -hmm. Guerrillas are guerrillas because they don't necessarily enjoy military discipline. And they like being able to go home at night. Uh, so what they'll do is they'll go out and, and prosecute their own kind of war and, and as, as guerrilla fighters uh, in this personal war, they'll make their own rules. Uh, so the, no, they're not, they're not necessarily uh, fighting around Cumberland Gap. They tend to try to avoid uh, organized combat, combat as much as they can. Yes, can you comment on whether or not there's any truth to the rumor that heard over the years that sometime during the war, there was an attempt made to blow up Flag Rock to destroy what is today the city of Norton was back then Prince's Flats? No, that's not, uh, um, I, I've never heard that. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't know, I don't know if there was ever that much firepower in Southwest Virginia that it would take to dislodge the rock. But uh, no, I haven't. Heard, I, I've heard that story, but I don't know that I've ever heard uh, anything that made me believe it, it, it to be true. Uh, did the guerrilla activity in the Southwest Virginia extend up into uh, the what is now West Virginia, like Warren, Princeton, and past those? A little bit. Uh, it was very isolated and very localistic down there. So usually uh, it was within a community or a series of, of connected communities. People like Mosby rode far and wide. People like Ferguson, he generally operated over a large area. But in southwestern Virginia, because the, the armies were usually right there amongst you, uh, the, uh, the guerrillas usually stayed very close to home. Uh, what do you think of the novel Cold Mountain? Oh, Cold Mountain? Uh, I haven't read a novel. I saw the movie. <laughs> I was, I'm always waiting for him to do a movie and then the book, but it never works out that way. <laughs> um, it's, it, seemed, it seemed fine. I mean, it had the guerrilla element down. I think it had the... Uh, the indifference element down. Uh, I think a lot of these folks, we would be shocked at how indifferent to human life people were back then. Uh, did you say that, did you say that uh, major coal mining came to this area prior to the war? Uh, uh, no, uh, coal, the coal industry got there in the 1880s, 1890s. These people that Champ Ferguson killed, uh, were they civilians, soldiers, or? Many of them civilians, uh, some of them soldiers. Uh, he was pretty much, he killed about half of them who were, uh, who were loyal unionists and the other half who he suspected to be loyal unionists. <laughs> I mean, you, you gotta understand, the first person he killed was a guy named William Frog, and William Frog uh, was an old man in his 70s at that time, which was quite old for the Civil War era. 
And Frog had been a friend of Ferguson's father for a long time. He had known Champ as a child. And uh, Champ went to visit Frog at his house, went in, sat down. You, you, those old houses, there's no light, so it's very dark. So he goes over, he sees William Frog is in the bed. He sits on the edge of the bed, and uh, they're talking, and uh, Champ asks him. He said, I hear, I hear that you went to Camp Dick Robinson, which was a union recruiting depot in Kentucky. This is a 75-year-old man who's gone to a union recruiting depot. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I did, but I didn't join. <laughs> and Champ said, it doesn't matter, and he shot him. Uh, to champ to champ you're with him or against him there is no gray area there's no middle ground and years ago I did a talk and, and a guy I know uh, was doing another talk after mine he's a Chicago homicide detective so when I found that out I said I know who I'm sitting with at lunch so we diagnosed champ for about an hour and a half and uh, he told me he said champ's the guy that we're terrified of because he doesn't even recognize he's doing anything wrong you know he's doing the right thing as far as he's concerned um so you talked about the um the one case of the the unionist who was angry at the confederate soldiers and they were stealing his chickens stuff like that um in areas where the armies went back and forth quite frequently like you mentioned um cumberland gap um did it how how tolling on the economic background was it i mean did you have people literally forced to move away because their entire ability to raise food was destroyed i mean how did how how much of an economic impact and how much like refugees i suppose were there yeah that, that's a wonderful question um what you have happening is, is by and large, a depopulation. Uh, there are people in Appalachia who uh, come into the region in the spring, uh, they plant corn, and then they move to Lexington, Kentucky, or to uh, you know Knoxville, Tennessee for the summer, and they go back in the fall to see if the corn made it, and the corn never made it. Uh, because uh, there's always a little Confederate cavalry group or Union cavalry group that comes through and, and takes the corn. Uh, but one of the things that, that's even more shocking is you don't have civil authority there for much of the war. If you look at, at court records during the Civil War in these, in these southwest Virginia counties, you know, you'll go three years without court meeting. Uh, when the Confederates come into these counties, particularly in Kentucky, which has not seceded, the first thing the Confederates will do is find the tax records pull them out into the street and set them on fire. Isn't that great news? I mean, that is, uh, listen, I like the United States, but if somebody says, hey, I'm thinking about doing away with taxes entirely, I'm still listening, you know? I've not, I've not left the building yet. But, uh, but, you know, they do this stuff. Churches, churches are amazing. One of the things I did yesterday is go over to the Library of Virginia and get into some of these Southwest Virginia church records. And uh, you'll have churches that are too afraid to meet for months on end during the Civil War. Churches. You'll have churches dividing, churches that will throw members out because they have sons or husbands uh, who have joined the Union Army. And then the amazing thing is after the war is over, they meet together, they get back together, and they say, guess what, we misread the signs the Confederacy lost. So what do we do? Well, we invite them back. Well, she's dead. Oh my God, what did we do? And you, can you imagine having that on your conscience? Because you misread those signs. Nobody misread them for you. That's your mistake. That may have cost someone their life and salvation. Uh, Jam Ferguson, um, it seems I've read somewhere where he made a deal with the federal government that he would not face what he ended up facing. There is truth to that? No, not at all. But uh, there are a lot of those stories floating around. Uh, there were stories that uh, Champ had uh, escaped the gallows and had been permitted to move off and, and go to Texas or go wherever. Uh, somebody found him in Mississippi in the 1920s. Uh, fact is, he was hanged. Uh, yeah, and, and this is the thing. 
1864, Champ shows up in Andrew Johnson, who is military governor of Tennessee, in his official records because somebody had sent in a letter and said, listen, I have it on good authority. Champ Ferguson's taken $5,000 to assassinate you. Well, when Champ stands trial, who does he petition for a pardon from? <laughs> President Andrew Johnson. Champ was not a learned man, but I'm sure he understood the word irony. I mean, if there's ever been an example of irony. And you know, if it were me, I would be there. I'd be in my jail cell waiting execution. I'd be like, you know what? This is really funny. You think about it. I think Nelson wants me to shut up. LAUGHTER